me start by just by saying good morning again, and I want to say good morning and greetings to those of you who are joining us by video right now in our traditional sanctuary or online. I'm glad that you're here too. Uh, hey, I want to invite the ushers to come forward. We're going to be learning from the Bible today, as we do each and every week in our messages. If you have a Bible with you, you can get it out now. If you'd like to borrow one, we do this every week. Just wave at the ushers. They'd be happy to hand one down the aisle to you. We're going to be learning from the book of Revelation today. So as you get a Bible, if you want to turn like toward the back, my bookmark is way back there. You can turn like back there, and I'll give you the reference and the page number in just a little bit. As we're getting our Bibles passed out, let me uh, kind of set the table here and ask you a question to think about what we're going to be learning about today. Here's my question for you. If you could know your own future, like if you could know your future, would you actually want to? You know, like I, I think I saw a movie about that once. Some guy got a chance to know like how and when he was going to die. And then like it changed how he made decisions. And that seemed like it'd be good to know the future, but then was it? I thought about this like in a more lighthearted way recently. Do you guys know what was on TV last Saturday? I was at, we were at dinner at the home of some members of our church, and about 5.30, 5.45 p.m., do you know what was on TV, what sporting event? The fastest two minutes in sports? The Kentucky Derby was on last Saturday, right? And because this is the 21st century, we were watching the Kentucky Derby on the television, and I was also watching videos about the Kentucky Derby and reading about it on another screen, right, multiple devices all the time. And so what was a little weird is they weren't exactly synced up. So it kind of looked like one app would allow you to bet on the race while another app was already showing you the race, right? I'm sure that wouldn't really have worked, right? But uh, what an opportunity, don't you think? Oh, okay, I'm not endorsing gambling. I'm just kidding. But uh, I thought about that same thing. Like, I'm really a big basketball fan. And when the NCAA tournament was on a few months ago, March Madness was on, and I would have, like, I'd be live streaming the game on one app while another app was giving me the final score of the game, which was not the score that I was looking at, you know? And I thought, I know who's going to score. I know how this is going to play out. A little bit dangerous. What if you could know the end? Would you want to? Well, we've been, we've been reading the book of Revelation together lately, the very last book in the Christian Bible in the New Testament. We've been reading Revelation, and we've been learning to read Revelation as a letter. It was, a, it was originally a vision that was given by Jesus to this ancient Christian guy whose name was John. John was exiled. He's persecuted for his faith, and he's exiled on this island in the Mediterranean Sea. And Jesus gave him this vision. He said, write this down and send it to these Christian communities. And we know them by name. We know where they were. They were in these cities in what is now, it was ancient Asia. Back then it was called Asia. Now it's modern-day Turkey. It's in modern-day Western Turkey. And some of those communities and some of those people who received the book of Revelation originally or the letter, they didn't call it Revelation. They probably called it the letter that John sent us. They got this letter, and some of them were suffering and afflicted and persecuted. And they got this vision, and it was a word of real encouragement to them. It really lifted their spirits and encouraged them. They weren't suffering for nothing, and that God was going to take care of them. It was going to be okay. It was a word of hope. Some of those cities and some of those communities and those people were not suffering at all. Everything was going just fine, thank you very much. And they were comfortable, and honestly, they were kind of complacent in their faith. And, and, the, and God's word to them through this vision, to the first group, was like, hold on, I've got you. To the second group, it was, wake up, man, turn around. Where, what are you living for? Come over here. And we've been learning to read this book of Revelation as a letter that was written to these ancient Christians who lived in circumstances kind of like ours, sometimes comfortable, sometimes not. And it can be a word of hope and a word of challenge to us. And, you know, we've been learning to read Revelation as this kind of letter and not really as like a playbook or like an end time script where you go like, okay, well, what's going to happen now? In the year 2020, we know that somebody's going to get elected in Iran and they're going to invade whatever country. It's not like an end time step-by-step -step playbook. And yet, Revelation does reveal it does make some promises about how things are going to turn out. And we're going to read about that together today as we have been. So again, if you've got a Bible with you right now, or if you've got a, your phone or tablet, you can open your, open your Bible app. 
And we're going to read in Revelation chapter 17 is where we're going to start today. Revelation 17, 1 through 6. And if you've got uh, the, one of the Quest Bibles that we use here, that's on page 1834, if that helps you find it, 1834. Now, before I read this passage, I just got to warn you. This passage is weird, all right? Like, this is weird. And when I'm reading this passage and we're reading it together, if you think to yourself, this is the worst Mother's Day passage ever, right? <laughs> I feel you, all right? <laughs> I know what you're saying. All right, so here we're going to read it together, and then the end, and try to understand what it means. One, just is what John wrote. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, that's from the last part of the vision, came and said to me, come and I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. Okay, first of all, that's a symbol, not a real person symbol. We'll talk about that in a minute. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery. That's also symbolic for something else. I'll tell you about that in a minute. And the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. And we've read about the beast in previous weeks, like a soldier, a servant of the enemy. Sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. And the name written on her forehead was a mystery, but I'm going to tell you what it is. <laughs> Babylon the Great the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. Ew. And that's gross, right? That's just some gross, off-putting, kind of revulsive imagery. What's that supposed to be about? Let me try to explain this a little bit. I think what we're looking at here is the ancient equivalent of a political cartoon. You've ever seen any political cartoons? You know, like, like here, here's one example. You guys know who this, who's this right here? Right? That's Uncle Sam, right? Everybody knows that when you see the guy with the top hat and the stars and the blue coat and other pictures, he has striped pants on, usually white shirt, red bow tie. When you see Uncle Sam, you know that Uncle Sam stands for the United States of America, right? That's a symbol for the country that many, that all of us here live in. And there are other symbols too that I didn't bring along, but like if I showed you a political cartoon of like elephants and donkeys, most of us in our culture would understand that's supposed to be about like the Republican political party and the Democratic political party. And if those cartoons had like exaggerated features or they were ugly or strong, or if one of them was like stomping and trampling people or kicking people, you would kind of understand like the symbolism of what's going on there. What we're reading here in words rather than pictures is starts out as and then becomes more than, but it starts out as a political cartoon. This character we're reading about, her name is Roma. She is like the, the patron goddess of the ancient city of Rome and the Roman Empire. And the people living in, in John's world arenas, they would have recognized her like you recognize Uncle Sam. But it's a caricature. Her features are exaggerated, and she's described really ugly. As you might imagine, Rome normally describes their own goddess not ugly but beautiful and powerful. And she holds a golden cup full of the finest wine. But here John says she's got a golden cup, cup full of filth and sewage, right? It's this caricature, this ugly, nasty, revulsive image, and it's meant to stand for ancient Rome. But, but not only that, because like if I told you that we're reading the Bible and it tells you about ancient Rome, you'd be like, well, that's cool. Can I go home now? Because I don't live there, right? It turns out it's actually more than that. In fact, right here in the vision, it's ancient Rome, but her name is Babylon, 
which was this other great power in the ancient world hundreds of years before Rome that also oppressed people and carried out all kinds of violence and injustice and oppression of God's people. And some of the characteristics actually recall Old Testament passages that describe the empire of Assyria, which was this other empire that was violent and brutal and conquered all kinds of people. And I think it, like Rome, Roma, she sat for the portrait, right? But it could stand for all kinds of people and powers in our world that, that work wickedness and evil and injustice and violence on the world. And so what's the purpose? Like, why would you write that? Why draw this cartoon in words? What, what is this vision supposed to show us or supposed to do? Well, I think a few things. I think the first one probably, I think the first purpose is this, is to unmask the ugliness of evil. To unmask the ugliness of evil. Because sometimes, doesn't sin and evil masquerade beautifully. It looks so attractive and alluring. Like I'm thinking ancient, in the ancient context, Rome was a successful city. And if you were doing all right in life, if you were part of the wealthy and the powerful, everything in Rome looked good to you. I mean, big buildings and beautiful stuff and fine food and luxury items, and it looked good. When you face temptation in life, have you ever met a temptation that was wearing a sign that said, I'm bad for you. This will hurt you in the long run, right? I mean, if, you, if every bad opportunity in life came with a sign that said, in the long run, I will hurt you and other people, well, sometimes we'd probably still do it, wouldn't we? Like, I mean, being honest. But hopefully most of the time, a lot of the time, we would go like, oh, okay, well, then maybe I don't want to do that. I think John here is trying to put a sign on stuff. He's trying to unmask the ugliness of what can look beautiful on the outside. Let, let me give you an example that, that I've kind of seen, first in historical context and then pointing to our own present lives. A few months back in like January and February, there was a group of us from our church here that traveled to Israel, and we were seeing some historical stuff. And at one point, we went out and we saw this kind of fortress palace out in the desert. It's called the Masada. It's this palace way out in the South Judean desert, way out in the dry wilderness near the Dead Sea. And up there on this palace was a place where some of the Roman aristocratic leaders, especially a guy whose name was King Herod, he's pretty famous in the Bible, but he's this powerful, wealthy leader in the ancient world. And we're seeing the remains of this palace, this fortress. And one of the things was like his storehouses, the storerooms, where all like the food and other stuff was stored throughout the, throughout the desert summer and all that. And the archaeologists have found all this cool stuff of what used to be in there. They've even found like the, the shipping labels. They found like the bills of lading of what was delivered, you know, and where it came from and all that stuff. And Herod had these barrels full of fish sauce that he had imported from Italy to this palace in the South Judean desert, right, up these huge cliffs. And at first, like, like that's kind of cool, right? Who knew that King Herod was a foodie? Did you know? Raise your hand. King Herod was a foodie, right? Mmm, the, um, the umami, the savory fish sauce is my food, right? And I imagine he's throwing these terrific parties. People love it. But then, I guess because of some of the other things that we were seeing, I was kind of sensitized to think, like, but at what cost, you know? Like, at what human cost did Herod get barrels of fish sauce in the desert? And I'm thinking of the people who are working in the bellies of the ships that are bringing this stuff across the sea, and the guys who are working in the caravans who are dragging this stuff across the desert and over the hills and through the dry wilderness, and then the people and the donkeys who got to bring it up the thousand-foot cliff faces so that Harry can throw parties and have his fish sauce, right? And like, on the one hand, you're like, well, that's an economy. I mean, jobs are created. People have stuff to do. But I'm just thinking, I don't think those guys are probably making a real great wage doing that kind of stuff, right? And the work conditions that they're in, I mean, some of them, I'm sure, are dying. They're getting shipwrecked and dying in the desert and falling off the cliff, and the animals are getting crushed. And I'm telling you that those people, they're not eating the fish sauce, right? I mean, they're not at that level. That's for Herod and his people, and everybody else is suffering in order to make him live how he wants. 
And I'm thinking, I bet there are things like that in my life, you know? I bet there are things like that now. Stuff that, it looks so beautiful on the outside. Because I know the people around Herod, they were flattering him. Like, Herod, you're so awesome. You like, oh, we just fish sauce. Thanks for throwing this great party. You're so successful. This is so amazing. What a beautiful home you've got here. And I'm going, I wonder what that is in my life, in our life. And I'm I'm not going to name any names or point any fingers, because frankly, I'd probably name the wrong names, and I wouldn't point enough fingers at myself. So I'm not going to do that. But I think as a community of people trying to learn to live life together in the way of Jesus, I think it's right for us to challenge ourselves to say, what is that now? What, what are those values, and what are those practices, and what is the consumption and the greed and the whatever that really does look pretty appealing to us right now? But if John were here right now, he'd put a sign over it that would say, this is bad for you and for your community in the long run. At what cost is this coming? I think that's something that's worth it for us to to think about together as a people. And and let me just take a minute to give one other example. I mean, if this is about greed and consumption, let let me try a different one that I think can sometimes really hurt us. And that is the real culture, I would say even like the idolization or the worship of physical beauty and sexuality in our world. We have a real idolization of beauty and youth, I think, right? And we invest so much energy and so much emotion and so much anxiety and so much material resource in trying to conform to some standard of beauty that happens on glossy magazine covers or videos or movies or Hollywood or or whatever that's unrealistic and fake anyway. And I just wonder what damage that does to our emotions and to our security and to our relationships and how corrosive that might be to us. And I think I told some of you maybe this story before, like in a in Bible study or something. And so if you've heard this before, I apologize. But this really kind of gripped my imagination. It made me see this more clearly than I had before. So a few years ago, I was reading a, a news story in some major news outlet. I think it probably popped up my Twitter feed or something. And it was a story about a Christian woman who had had a very successful career uh, within the last 10 years as a, as a great American supermodel. And I think she was one of like the leading models for Victoria's Secret. So I imagine that's like the top of the career chain, right? I think probably doing great. And she had kind of been thinking, like, I don't know if this is really for me, if I'm comfortable doing this or not anymore. But the straw that broke the camel's back for her was this one time she was together with her extended family for, like, a holiday or something, Thanksgiving, Christmas, I don't know. And she was in the bathroom doing, like, hair and makeup or whatever else it is you women do in the bathroom, like, hair and makeup or something. And her little niece, she wasn't married, didn't have kids, anything like that. Her little niece kind of comes up, and she's watching her, put her makeup on her or whatever. And she says to her, Auntie Jen, or I don't even remember her name. I'm going to call her Jen, okay? She says, Auntie Jen... I decided I'm not going to eat anymore either so I can look like you when I grow up. And uh, that was the straw that broke the camel's back for her. And she decided, I'm part of this value system. I'm part of perpetuating something in our culture. I'm not trying to throw stones at one profession or or at her or anybody in particular, but there's this value system in our culture that puts this terrible pressure on people, that creates this destructive stuff in our souls. And I just wonder, what do we do in ourselves? And maybe what are we doing to our daughters and our nieces and, and whatever? This is a life-stealing arrangement. And I think one reason that John, one reason that this vision is given to John and that John shares it with the ancient Christians and also with us is to unmask the ugliness of what looks beautiful on the outside and say, this is, this is really harmful stuff. And that, that's important for us, right? But then the second reason that I think that this vision is given to John and shared with us is not just to unmask the ugliness of evil, but then to declare God's victory over it, Right? To say this life-stealing arrangement, all this stuff that breaks our relationships and our societies and our hearts and souls, that doesn't last. That's not what God wants for us, and it's not God's future for us. Instead, God triumphs over this, right? And you would think that for all of us, that should be good news. We'd be like, thank God that whatever that is that's breaking our communities and breaking our hearts, that that goes away, right? 
But John says not everybody actually reacts that way. Not everybody's going to be happy about that. And I, I want to read to you a couple more passages. If you want to, I should have warned you, I always forget. Keep your page open there. We're just turning like one page, all right? We're going to read some verses in Revelation chapter 18 right now. And this is Revelation 18, 9 through 17, and uh, quest page 1835 going over to 36 if you're in our, in our quest Bible. We're going to find out that some people are going to mourn the fall of this arrangement of things, this system. Starting in verse 9, uh, Revelation 18, verse 9. When the kings of the earth, right, the powerful people outside of Rome, when the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her, and that means like they made pacts with her, alliances, that sort of thing, and they shared her luxury, when they see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Whoa, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. See all the symbolic names. In one hour your doom has come. Man, they're mourning over this, over the fall of evil, right? Why? Because they bet on the wrong horse, right? They thought it was going to go one way, and it's going another way. They hitched their fortunes to the wrong horse. But it's not just the kings. In verse 11, the merchants of the earth, the business leaders, will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood, articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble. Did you think we made up globalization in this century, right? Rome had it all figured out. Cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and human beings sold as slaves. They will say, the fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your luxury and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Woe, woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, glittering with gold. Guess not all that glitters is gold. Precious stones and pearls. In one such hour, in one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Why are they mourning? Because they bet on the wrong horse, right? They looked for life where it wasn't to be found. They looked for joy and fullness where God has not put it. They looked for the real and the counterfeit. And now they're mourning. But not everybody's mourning. Some react in rejoicing. And now let's, let's take a look at that. Flip forward just a little bit. Revelation chapter 19, just two verses, verses 1 and 2. This is quest page 1837. Revelation 19, verse 1. After this, John said, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven. Have you heard the roar go up at a football game or something? The roar of a great crowd in heaven shouting, hallelujah, praise God. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. Finally, truth's going to come out. Finally, good is going to win. Justice is going to prevail. He has condemned the great prostitute who has corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Some people are cheering the fall of this wicked order. Who gets to do that? Is there, is there any part of you inside that twitches a little bit at that? There is for me that goes like, is that okay to cheer when somebody else falls? And wh when is that okay to do? For whom is that okay to do? Why, why are they doing that here? I think for, th for this population that's described here, these cheerers, they're the people who've been on the business end of this wickedness. They're the people who have been afflicted and persecuted, who are suffering, because they've been on the downside of Rome's tyranny. And they're seeing the fall of that power. They're seeing the fall of the wicked. And they're going, thank God. 
praise God that finally God has done something about this. Somebody is in charge of this mess, and he's making it right. Good wins, and God wins. Praise God. And I, I can understand that. And I think maybe not just them, but maybe those who have eyes to see, maybe those whose hearts are filled with compassion, I don't know how many of us have ever been in that kind of situation. Some of us are suffering from the brokenness of life in lots of different ways right now. Maybe that's where you are. Others are seeing it and are saying, I see how my brothers and sisters are getting crushed. I see how other people are really getting hurt by this. And when, and when wickedness and when evil falls, I can cheer for that and go, thank God that God has overcome that. And the cheer goes up, hallelujah, praise God, salvation and power and glory belong to our God. Good wins. God wins. But then, but then you just ask yourself just a little bit. And in the margins of my Bible, as I was preparing for this series months ago, I was reading the margins of my Bible, I wrote, but is the fall of Rome really our hope? Like, is that it? Is that our ultimate hope? Because if so, I, I don't feel very hopeful about that. I mean, that happened like 1,700 years ago. And what happens sometimes in the world is when one person's working of evil goes away, another one comes in next. Where our real hope is is in the, is in the power behind the power. Is in, the power, is in God's defeat of the dark power behind the powers as we see them in this world. And I want to show you a quick overview, a real bird's eye view of the part of Revelation we have been reading that says God doesn't just triumph over like Rome or Babylon or whoever or whatever that might be right now, but rather over the power of darkness behind the power. So let me put this slide up here right now. A few chapters ago, we saw Satan's war on earth. There was a passage about the dragon, and the dragon was hurled down to earth and, and makes war on the people of God, and they're suffering in the world because of evil. Satan makes war on earth. The beast conquers. The enemy has soldiers. The Satan unleashes us on the world. And then the harlot, we started reading this today, the, the prostitute, Rome, rides the beast, and, she's, and then the harlot is destroyed. In, in Revelation 17, we're, kind of, we're getting to that part right now. And then the beast is conquered, and then we're not going to read this in Revelation 20, but then Satan is conquered. And Revelation is described in such a way as to see evil rolled out and then to see it rolled right back again, to say that God triumphs over the power of darkness in this world. And that's our hope, that God wins in the end. I've, I've been trying throughout this whole series to think of what's the best one-line summary of Revelation that I could give you that, like, in a few weeks and you forget everything that I've said for five weeks, like, what's the one thing that we could all remember from this? And, and God wins is one of the best one-line summaries that I can, Jesus is Lord is another, a guy came up to me after worship at the last service. He said to me, I've got a suggestion for you. Here's your one-line summary of Revelation. Jesus rules. Satan drools. <laughs> okay, yeah, great. Take that one home if you want. That would be great. That's our hope, that in the end, God wins, that, that evil does not triumph, that it's a reality in our lives. It is a reality. It is a present reality, but it is not the eternal reality. It is the truth, but it is not the ultimate truth. God wins in the end. So if, if we're seeing this story, of God's triumph over evil. What, what are we supposed to do about that? What impact, what effect, what response do you think that God wants to create in our lives by giving his people this vision, giving it to ancient followers of Jesus and now? Well, I mean, I think we can kind of even get there by seeing what the vision has done. John unmasks the ugliness of evil so that we will want no part of it, right? So we won't go, well, that's great, that's beautiful, I want to be part of that. Rather, it's ugly, it's destructive, I don't want that. And he tells us that God triumphs over evil in the end. So we'll go, well, good, I want no part of that. I don't want to be on that train. And I think also so that we'll have hope. So that we'll have hope and know that evil does not win, but God wins. And I think there's, like, there's one verse that really sums it up pretty well. You could take this as kind of a, a theme verse for our response to this. It's Revelation chapter 18, verse 4. This is what it says. Come out of her, my people, the voice says. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins 
so that you will not receive any of her plagues. Don't, don't have anything to do with evil. Come out of her so you won't share in her sins, so you won't share in her plagues. Let me kind of turn toward home here for today by changing the image for a second and give you a different way to think about this. Have any of you guys ever, have you ever read the book or seen the play or seen the movie or in my case, seen the cartoon of Charles Dickens' great story, A Christmas Carol? Do you know this, this is the story of Ebenezer Scrooge, who's a very successful, wealthy businessman, also very mean-spirited in this case. He's got, he's stingy and he's got an employee whose name is Bob Cratchit and Bob works hard for low wages and bad conditions. He can't even get a piece of coal to heat up the room where he works because Scrooge is too Scroogey, right? Too stingy. And Bob Cratchit has a son named Tim Cratchit, Tiny Tim, who's sick and dying at home. And Ebenezer Scrooge has an old business partner, a guy named Jacob Marley. He used to do business with, with Jacob Marley. I, sometimes I get confused because Bob Cratchit and Jacob Marley, I think it's Bob Marley, but it's not really Bob Marley. It's <laughs> Jacob Marley. Thankfully, I didn't get that wrong all morning long. And Jacob Marley comes back to Ebenezer Scrooge in a dream, uh, and he warns Scrooge about where his life is headed. And kind of in probably what coming some of the most famous scenes from this story, Jacob Marley tells Scrooge, you're going to see three visions tonight. Could I call them three revelations, maybe? You're going to get three visions tonight from three ghosts or spirits. And Ebenezer Scrooge gets a vision from the ghost of Christmas past and the ghost of Christmas present, because this happens on Christmas Eve night. I forgot to say that. Christmas Eve night. And then a picture, and you're going to get a vision of the, from the ghost of Christmas future. And you know, at first he starts to get a, a vision into the reality of things the way they are, not just how they look to him. In some ways, I think what we're seeing, especially in the ghost of Christmas present, is an unmasking of the ugliness of evil. And he sees the pain and suffering in the Cratchit's lives. He sees things that he, he doesn't know about, and it starts to get to his heart. And the ghost of Christmas future comes to him, and he shows him a funeral. He shows him a grave, and he shows him this funeral, this grave of this guy who died, hated and alone and mocked by the grave diggers and everybody else. And Scrooge sees his own name on the gravestone, and he realizes he sees this horrible vision of his own future, and it terrifies him, right? And Scrooge says to that ghost, I think, he, I think you could say he's almost praying. He's pleading. He says, tell me, promise me, assure me, assure me that I may yet change these shadows. Assure me that I can change, this doesn't have to be my future. I don't want it to end like that. Assure me that I may yet change these shadows by an altered life. If I change where I'm heading, can I wind up in a different destination? Tell me that's the case. And Scrooge wakes up in the morning, and it's Christmas morning, very conveniently, he wakes up on Christmas morning, he begins to live an altered life. And he begins to live a life that's full of kindness and generosity and compassion and joy. So much more joy, right? And it's Christmas morning. I think it's a fantastic parable. It says this is much more what life looks like when Jesus is born into our lives. When Jesus enters into our lives, this is much more what life looks like. And Scrooge continues to live an altered life. And I wonder just if that isn't a little bit of a parallel to what we're seeing here in the book of Revelation, in the funeral of Babylon, if we're seeing something like the funeral of Scrooge. Not a prediction of what's inevitable for any of us, but more a prediction of what happens if, you know? And if the, if the intention here is an intention to invite us, cajole us into an altered life. But what's tricky here about this, what's tricky is understanding where we are between good and evil. Where does the line, as we try to respond to this and live an altered life, 
where does the line between good and evil run? I have been told, and I have come to believe, that the line between good and evil runs down the middle of every human heart. It runs down the middle of every human heart. And so there are some of us, some parts of us, sometimes, some places in our lives, I think probably all of us, sometimes and in some places, we are the people who are the victims of the evil and wickedness in the world. And it has broken our hearts. And it has hurt us. It has wrecked our lives. It has brought pain into our relationships. We live in a fallen creation. We battle with suffering and disease and drought, famine, all kinds of nastiness. And sometimes the darkness is real dark, isn't it? Sometimes the hill we're climbing, it is steep and it is long and it is hard. And to that part of us and into those times and seasons in our lives, I think the word of Jesus through the book of Revelation to us is exactly the word that he spoke at the beginning of Revelation and says to those Christians who are suffering, which is, I've got you. Hold on. I am alive. And Jesus, who's been raised from the dead, who suffered the worst that the world had to offer, and they nailed him across and they laid him in a tomb, and it got as dark as it gets, and he was raised again from the dead, and the lamb triumphed over the dragon, and he says, I am alive, and I walk among you. Hold on. It's going to be okay. Hold on. This is not how it ends. It is going to be okay in the end. It is a promise that God will heal our broken hearts, that he will heal our broken bodies. He will heal our broken creation. He will heal our broken relationships in this present world and or into the next. Hold on. I'm alive. I've got you. And there are other, there's, then there's this other side of us, right? This is the other side of us, that at different times or in different seasons or sometimes at the very same time but in different ways, we are not just the innocent victims of the evil in the world, but we're cooperating with it, right? By the choices we make and the values that we value and the lifestyle that we live, that we're cooperating with what breaks the hearts of others, that we're cooperating with what breaks relationships and breaks communities. And I think the word of Jesus to us in those circumstances is, again, the word that we've been reading since week one from the very beginning of the book of Revelation, where Jesus says, I'm alive. Don't forget about me. I'm over here. I'm alive, and I'm walking among you. So wake up from that and turn. Turn back to me. In other words, repent. You may live an altered life. And there's that great image from the early part of the book of Revelation where Jesus says, I'm right here. I'm standing on the door knocking. I believe that Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart and my heart, every individual heart, every family, every community. Jesus is knocking on the door of the heart of our church, knocking on the door of the heart of our world and saying, open up to me. And whoever opens the door to me, I will come in and dine with you. I will come in not in judgment, but in grace and healing and restoration. Open the door to me and I will come in and dine with him and he with me. This vision is meant to give us an opportunity. It's a gift of truth to us an opportunity to live an altered life. And that's what we do when we walk out from this place. We don't come here just for an hour of entertainment. We come here to encounter the Spirit of God, to be given hope, to be given grace, to be given life, and invited to live in it. And that's what we do when we walk back out. We do that every hour of every day of our lives. And here we begin in prayer together. So let's close this time of reflection together in prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are gracious and you are good and you are true. We worship you and we thank you for revealing your truth to us. Thank you that you care enough about us to communicate with us, to send Jesus into this world, to send a vision, to send truth. And I thank you for your grace. Where we are on the business end of this world's suffering, I pray that you would lift us up with your hope, that you would lift us up with your grace, that you would fill us with love for one another, 
Make us to be a community of grace for one another. And God, where we are wandering from you, where we have not been kingdom builders but kingdom wreckers, turn us, God. Give us your Holy Spirit. Open the eyes of our heart and the ears of our hearts to hear your word and see your leading and lead us a different way. And we pray that you would fill us individually as a community and your world, that you would fill this world with hope and grace. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to shift gears here for a second. You know, our, our teaching team, we come together, and as a church, we, use all, we all use our gifts to build one another up, and our teaching team tries to serve this church by building us up in God's Word every week. We would also, though, like to not just talk, but listen. And in your worship bulletin this morning, there is a survey, and we're in the process right now of shaping up and making some decisions for our worship and growth group series in the coming year, and we would love your input as we do that. So we're going to take a minute and worship right now, and I hope maybe you got one of those forms or even a pen, or if you need one, they're in the back of the room, and that you could let us know over the course of this last year what's been helpful to you and helping you grow in your faith and as a follower of Jesus, and some of the things that you think might be helpful to you in the coming year, or the things you think will be helpful to people who aren't here yet, and maybe you would invite someone as if there's an opportunity to hear some teaching and hear a word of hope in some of those areas. So if you would fill that out, please, here, just in the next minute or two, we're going to do that. And you can drop those in the baskets that are by the doors as you exit the service uh, just a little bit later. So we'll take a minute and do that right now. And I thank you very much for your input.